My name is Rick Leib. I am the virtual, I run the virtual CISO organization with Access Point. So that is my uh, department, if you will. Uh, my role here is to act as a moderator and help add and aid this discussion. Today, we're going to talk about insider threat, how to detect and how to deter it. And with me, I have two special guests. I have Jeff Hancock and Joe Brophy with me. And I'm going to ask Joe to go ahead and introduce himself and his experience, a little bit of his background. And then I'll ask Jeff to do the same thing. So my, my experience is a CISSP, 35 years of experience in the business. So I've been around mom and pops and they have managed large networks as far as 144 offices spanning six continents. So at that point, I'm going to ask Joe to go ahead and introduce yourself. Hey, Joe, go ahead. Hey, yes, I'm Joe Bruffy. Yeah, I've been uh, in the space for a little over 20 years, probably about 25 years. Uh, managed everything from large infrastructures for large companies, small governments, small businesses, healthcare, and uh, whatnot. Jeff, why don't you introduce cool. yourself? Let yep. everybody know who you are. And you're- <clears throat> Jeff Hancock, I've uh, been in cybersecurity for over 25 years. Um, military, intelligence community, and then private sector. Uh, for a long time, been a CISO for gosh, 18 years now. Um, so it's been a while. Uh, as it relates to our conversation today on insider threat, um, I've built uh, 14 programs, insider threat programs for 14 different organizations, government, a few government, and then the rest private sector over the last 15 years or so now. Um, I'm also involved in the uh, National Insider Threat Task Force. Um, that's out here. I live, in, I live on the East Coast, so it's not too far from me. The headquarters are not too far from me. Uh, it's hosted by the Director of National Intelligence. Um, it's an interesting group of people. We really work across the board, government and industry. Uh, so broad experience running security operations, uh, building SOCs, running SOCs as a CISO, as an engineer. But then on the flip side of that, I've also spent a significant amount of time in the last 10 years, 15 years in particular, working uh, with the CIOs and CISOs, CIOs and CEOs of organizations to really help them understand the business value of security. Uh, inside of threats as well. So kind of have a, a both sides of the coin. I've been a CISO. I've also worked with CISOs um, as a field CISO. So it's a broad experience there. Nice. Thanks for having <laughs> Oh, we're happy to have you here, Jeff. Anytime. We'd love to have you back as often as you as often as you'd like to. So uh, today's topic, like I said, you know, is, is how to detect and deter insider threats. And um, Jeff's got a lot of NIST experience as well, which is really helpful. And Joe's got a lot of experience. So I'm going to go ahead and kick the chat conversation off a little bit and kind of set the tone, if you will. So as a CISO myself, the largest threat I've ever seen to any organizations comes from the inside, right? Now, it could be permissions issue based. It could be uh, nefarious or malicious intent, which is extremely rare. But it does happen, but it's very rare. Usually where I see the uh, insider threat come from is somebody accidentally doing something. They didn't even know that they were doing anything wrong, and it just happened. You know, they've deleted the, you know, CFO's data files or something along those lines. Uh, or they've opened up an email, you know, that has, you know, some malicious attachment attached to it. And lo and behold, you've got 500 workstations and 20 servers immediately encrypted, right? Uh, or worse, you don't have those immediately encrypted. You start extra <laughs> upfiltrating data, then they wait a little while, then they encrypt them all. So... I'm going to get Sam back in. Hey, I'm going to ask Joe. Joe, in your in your experience, what are some of the things that you have seen or insider threat where we could have done better or the, the company could have done better or things that they should have looked out for that they didn't look out for, that they didn't realize to look for? Sure. Well, the, the, the biggest thing is a lot of people or a lot of organizations don't turn on any you know, user entity behavior analytics or 
anything in that space. You know, there's a lot of underutilized technologies in the you know machine learning and uh, you know that that kind of space. So it's um, there, there's certainly a lot of behaviors that we understand that are they're malicious, not not necessarily malicious, but not desired or sanctioned uh, that that do kick off that we can automatically block uh, or but we have to be aware of them. We have to ingest you know the the logs in and uh, actually find those behaviors and define them. Jeff, how about you? Same question to you. Um, <clears throat> what have I seen? Yes. In the space? Or what have you seen? What, what you know, what could have been avoided, you know, things like that. Yeah. So I think um to both of your points, really, you know, it, it, there's when you look at insider threats, not many are malicious, but those are the ones that people know about, right? right? So a lot of companies, a lot of federal agencies, is there a requirement to announce that they have an insider threat attack? or something malicious is going on, not necessarily. If there's a public breach and it fits certain standards and the company's required to, but by the way, there's 51 different standards, one for each state, that companies have to apply breach response times and standard and, rec- and reporting requirements to, which is crazy, right? So back to the point, reporting an insider threat breach mm, is embarrassing to the company, yes. right? Uh, so how do you do awesome. that? How do you, yeah, exactly. How do you do that in a, in a way... How do you rectify that and solve that problem? I think I think there's more insider threat going on than people are willing to admit because one, it's difficult. They they might get confused with how to identify it. Two, what Joe said, the user behavior analytics, man. I mean, you can say there's a product for that, but it's always about tweaking that product to fit your environment and what you need, right, Joe? I mean, you gotta you gotta yeah, massage. Yeah, but no, you're absolutely correct. You know, getting it to fit your environment is. Very important because there there might be a velocity of events that can go out, or there might be something that's normal for a user that then is not normal. So that might be more to the malicious side. But then there's the fact that okay, this user doesn't normally send things out, or we don't want this leaving through that channel. Uh, you know, and having the you know the blocks for that. So having a solid DLP, a solid conditional access program, all that. So, I mean, all these layers really add up to. Uh, help mitigate insider threat. Yep, yep. Have you seen, quick question, Joe, real quick. Uh, have you seen organizations like try to answer that UB, user, user behavioral analytics challenge? Like, we have to apply this to everybody. Or do they yes. slow down and kind of do an assessment and say, well, we don't need to do everybody. We need to apply behavioral analytics to this data yes. and then figure out who? I mean, what do you guys... Yeah, but they have a background, so I've, I've, that that specifically is 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 worked on extensively in the in the HIPAA background, in your healthcare background, because of the sensitivity of medical records, break the glass type environments are there. For, uh, an example was I worked with a, a hospital system that a movie star came into and was injured and came in. They took care of the movie star, and you know, and off that person went and did their job. And about two weeks later, we had to revive, we had to report 14 uh, HIPAA violations to OCR, which was not a lot of fun to either A, had to have the con- you know, conversations with our own employees. Why did you go look at the movie star's records? What were you doing? Why <laughs> were you doing that? Congratulations, you've lost your job. You know, and we had to report that to the privacy officer. The privacy officer did their thing. HR did their thing. But yeah, no, just to answer your answer your question specifically, yeah, I have seen that very targeted in the healthcare environment. Yep, yep, yep. I agree. I think that's where, um, in, broadly speaking, as a CISO, when you're running programs like this, you know, user behavioral analytics is an element of the program, 
the tactical element of the program. And, and but there's there's other things ahead of that that need to kind of that need to be defined, right? So, um, really, let me explain it this way real quick. It's kind of like a layer cake with three layers. In the bottom level, you have, and I'll use this as a reference point. At the bottom level, you have um, really there's 14 technical disciplines in cybersecurity. Two of those the government uses. So let's put those aside for a second. So let's say there's 12 technical disciplines in security that everybody does. DHS does all 12. Kmart, if they're still around, might do four of the 12. So it just depends yeah. on, the, on the size and scope of your organization. But that's where you see uh, really incident response forensics, uh, you know, a variety of things of a very tactical hands-on keyboard as a cyber discipline, technical discipline at the tactical level. One level up is the operational level. That operational level is where you have a SOC, where you have a third-party security program, where you have cloud security. Those are programmatics that require elements of those tactical disciplines, but then they also bring in IT or some executive information or consumer data, that kind of thing. Uh, and so that's at the operational level. At that operational level, you that's where inside of threat programs have sat for, for me when I've developed them at that operational level. So I've got a pull from different technologies. User behavior analytics is one of those you know, subset programs. Um, that you bring in, but you've got to be able to understand what technical pieces come in and operationalize it from a program plan perspective. And the last level is that enterprise level, the strategic level, where for an inside threat program, you've got to have a sponsor. You've got to have key stakeholders. You've got to know, you've, you you engage the senior executives of different divisions for your inside threat program. For So for chief legal counsel, head of HR, uh, physical security, if you've got that, the CIO, right? Those are key people that, you need to develop a program, again, the overarching umbrella program for an insider threat you know, effort in your organization. And then within that, you break that down into what's practical for your organization, right? Threat modeling, user behavior analytics, like Joe mentioned, is, is key. Uh, because again, you, get, you can't apply that to everybody because then you'll it, the cost goes to the floor, clearly, <laughs> when you do that. Yeah, it's, but It's difficult. Also, too much information. So yeah, targeting yeah. does help, absolutely. But speaking yeah. of that, how have you, in your history, um, Jeff, how do you, or what is your preferred method to monitor user activity? So you're looking for that insider threat. What are you typically looking for? We all talk about end-user behavior analytics. We talk about, you know, some of the very basics, but what are some of the things that you look for specifically when you monitor for end-user activity or uh, end-user inactivity? What do you look for to find an insider threat potentially moving around, moving laterally, how do you, what, what are some of the techniques you use? Yeah, so I think there's, I, I overlap looking at insider threats with looking at just malicious actors. Um, you know, step one of a malicious actor is to look like he belongs or he or she belongs in your organization, right? So uh, there's a crossover when you approach it from that perspective and you've got to look at it like, okay, what's my intent? Initially, bad actors, when they get into the network, they find a dark corner and sit and watch and pay attention and gather data. They don't just go charging and start stealing information, exfilling it. They understand, they, they really do a mapping of the network, both, both physical, but then operational. How operationalized is this network? How many people access to this data versus that data? Why is that important? So those types of methods are, are key. And you develop a, a threat actor profile, right? And that threat actor profile is based on really, at, at a fundamental level for this call, based on two things. What bad actors might want my information, one. And two, what information is most valuable to other people that I have, right? So... Using that perspective, you develop that profile. How that fits to inside a threat, very similar, right? You take user behavior Linux and set that aside for a second. What's the profile of somebody who's going to be marching through my network trying to get access? Who would want most most important information? Who would want to be able to access finance data, 
uh, or you know budgetary uh, you know, programmatic budgetary data or whatever M and A information. What's that look like, right? We've had people I've worked with organizations where they're trying to figure out an insider threat program development plan that we're putting together for them, also doing an M&A. At the same time, chief counsel is responsible for doing the M&A. They bring an outside consultant or two or three. And then outside consultant all of a sudden has access to some pretty classified, you know, corporately classified information. And they're touching that data on weekends, at home, unsecured network, right? And you're like, okay, this is going to be a problem here, right? So it's a couple of things, but I think at its foundation is developing that program, that perspective of what's that threat actor look like, whether the insider or not, what will be bad actor behavior within my network? What's the most important thing? And I think if you start there, you're able to, to really back into what a program, what a person looks like, what a behavior looks like. And then to Joe's point, you apply user behavioral analytics to that profile. And you're like, oh, wait a second, you know, Billy Bubba in the warehouse really doesn't care about corporate M&A data, but oddly enough, he's accessing that at five o'clock on a Friday. Why is he doing that? It's a little unusual, right? Because you've developed the understanding of that corporate M&A data is is targeted and will be targeted. How do you provide that that format around it to chase it down? So it's a couple of spinning plates there, but um, at its core, you kind of look at those two things, that threat actor profile is is key. Bill, so some of the technologies that you've used in the past, how have you tried to detect, how have you detected end user, you know, um, inside Insider threat. What are the, some of the things that you've done? Look for outside of just user ba- user behavior analytics. Oh, there, there's lots of different things that you can uh, you know, look at for insider threat. I mean, even even just as simple as you know toxic role combinations, making sure that your access controls are are set correctly. You know, because uh, you know users shouldn't necessarily be accessing certain data. So why do they have access? There, there, there could be scope creep. You know, something as simple as that. You know, that, that's an age old problem where users they change roles and they maintain their permissions as they're moving <laughs> from role to role, and all of a sudden they're you know God essentially. They they own everything. Uh, you know, there's also watching you know lateral movement. Yeah, you because know, obviously once you get the insider or any threat, they can start moving you know east west. Or north south. So, how do you segment those those off? Like that's another way to prevent, you know, insider issues. So, if you can't get from one one endpoint to the other, or you can only get to certain services, that that helps a lot. So, I mean, just architecture alone can can help a lot in the insider threat, you know, profile. That's the one area I've seen that a lot of people seem to somehow miss is when you do a business impact analysis, for example. So, we're going to look at an impact in the business. A lot of times you go through the BIA practice and we find systems that people forgot about, processes running that have been abandoned. Now they're at risk and they're an insider threat because nobody's watching them, nobody knows what's happening with them. They're still doing whatever they're trying to do and they can be exploited. And have you guys seen anything along those lines in the past where abandoned processes could potentially be an insider threat or be abused by an insider threat? Jeff, have you seen anything along those lines? Uh, in the uh energy sector in particular, right? Old manufacturing or OT systems that people are like, don't touch it. It works great. It does these five things. We don't want anybody laying their fingers on it. Okay, but it's open to the internet. I don't care, right? And it, you've got to convince people that, okay, I understand, but we're going to have to segment off your network a little bit. Micro-segment it off over here, make it harder, build an enclave, make it more difficult for that network to access the core data. And there, you can keep doing what you're doing, but you know, and that's that was that was a solution. But 
at that point, that conversation I had was after uh, they had already identified a pretty significant breach. And that's how the bad guys got in, right? They, they look like one of the guys in the field who'd log on three times a day, checking certain systems. And he was, he did it at home one too many times. And a bad actor found out and said, Oh, wait, I can access this through his network and I can, and they were compromised. Yeah. If I'm encryption helps come from the healthcare background, <laughs> encryption at rest, encryption in motion, encryption mm-hmm. during processing really does help. Because uh, the reality is, if you get breached with encrypted data, not breached. There's no data breach. Let me rephrase that. There's no. You're still breached. But there's no <laughs> data breach. Let me let me rephrase that and be very clear. Now, that's one thing we've always looked at. So, Joe, have you do you recommend uh, use like background check investigations, uh, building a culture of trust and openness, or educating your employees and your threat on your inside of threats? Have you recommended any of these in the past, or worked with any of these in the past? Any of these ideas? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, obviously having a culture of trust, having, you know, training people in simple stuff, just even like how to avoid phishing emails, you know, how to report that, you know, training is a big portion of eliminating the unintended insider threat. Uh, you know, that that's become even more so lately. You know, we, I've even seen a lot of, uh, you know, smishing attempts lately. Uh, you know, there, and people are getting, some people are getting better responding to those and some aren't, <laughs> you know, cause it, you get the people that get it right away and the people that fail 20 fishing tests in a row. <laughs> so Jeff, what would your, what is your advice to say a new CISO? So if somebody's new to the being, becoming a CISO and this is one of the, in my opinion, now I can be wrong, but in my opinion, this is one of the biggest threats to face InfoSec period across the board, pretty much a government or small business, large business enterprise is inside the threat. That's just my nickel. What, what advice would you give a new CISO that would be coming into the role specifically around insider threats, detection, deterrence? What, what, what information or what advice would you offer? Uh, it's a two-pronged approach. Uh, there is the business side because the business function is what's going to provide you the biggest risk uh, regarding inside threat because the business is going to want to do whatever they want to do. Uh, so you're going to have to address that issue. But then there's, <clears throat> certainly there's the technical side, which is IT and cyber, uh, which gets to I think, a point Joe was making earlier about architecture, like re- looking at your architecture to make sure that from the, again, the IT side, which cyber doesn't control typically, that the IT architecture is designed in such a way that critical data is encrypted. Rick, to your point, uh, is segmented <laughs> off, right? You've got the most, you only have five people accessing the data instead of 25 people accessing the data who need it, right? But I think it's, for specifically for inside of threat programs, um, it's it's about five things, right? It's developing the enterprise program, which is sitting down with your executive team and saying, okay, we need a program for this. We need some person to be the quarterback who, when something goes sideways, they're on point to manage this this program. Um, the second thing is obviously identify the team, right? And that means again, this it's not just cyber, right? It's IT, it's HR, it's legal, it's the business owners. Like all of a sudden, yeah, all of a sudden they are on point here. If something goes sideways, everybody gets on the joint 1-800 call, oh crap, and has start having conversations, start figuring out what's going on. Um, the third thing is really around uh, doing a risk assessment. So from a CISO's perspective, looking at your organization from an inside yeah. point of view and doing a risk assessment. What are bad actors? Who are they going to go after? What does their threat profile look like for me in the organization, for my executives in the organization? Uh, just to identify and narrow down because you can't get everybody. So let's start like a rock in a pond, right? 
It's about Rock and Apana that the closest, closest concentric circle is the one you focus on, not the 15 that go out in the pond. So as it says, so you focus on the most important data in that circle. Yep. And then go out if you need to. Um, the, the really, it's this one, two, three, um, really the, is building out that process. The last thing is building out, the, building out the program itself, which means obviously engaging those stakeholders that I mentioned earlier, but going so far as to actually build out a tabletop exercise. So one, uh, one example comes to mind real quick is an organization I work with, and they, were, they saw the need for it, global company. Um, they had a CISO, but the CISO wasn't too engaged in the process. But they knew they had to, to have a program plan in place. So what we ended up doing, long story short, was we created a series of playbooks once a month for 90 minutes. All the executives who had a stake in this in, in the inside of their program would get on a call and they'd walk through their playbook. So the CISO would monthly. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. So, and, and the CISO had a job of making sure the playbook was updated for everybody. Like, this is your role, HR. And they would come up with uh, an actually story plan. And the CISO would say, all right, everybody's on the call. All right, here's what I'm updating on. We've got this breach. It's We found it in HR. Blah, 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 blah. HR, what do you do? And HR turns to their playbook, page 17. Oh, I need to go do this and this and this and this and this. And that that really helped the leadership, the stakeholders, understand that for 90 minutes a month, that's all we need you to do. We need you to know what to do, what page to turn to. And the CISO will take care of everything else. Right? That's it, awesome. That, that it builds a good program. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that really kind of streamlined, did streamline the, the program, um, launched it in the US, launched it in Canada, and then kicked it overseas uh, for the overseas team at EMEA. And, uh, and it worked well because they, they, everybody knew they had that stakeholder responsibility. Uh, and, there, and everybody was like, oh, a tabletop exercise. This could be fun. You know, and the HR people were like, hey, look, I'm doing cybersecurity and I'm in HR. <laughs> so it was kind of a, it was a, a little, interesting thing for them to get a view a window into cybersecurity and they contributed and they had a participant play in that right uh, not everybody viewed it that way right chief legal counsel was like why am i here yes exactly you know, a lot. You know, and then and you got to convince them hey look you know when things go sideways chief legal counsel you are going to be on point because you're going to be legal right. you want to be in the boardroom which would right. yeah right yeah so those are fun to do but i think those those are the five things i would recommend okay um, five points but Joe, we got a question from the audience. So I'm going to throw this at Joe specifically. So Joe, the question is, how can we find insider threats if genuine credentials are used for malicious intention by attackers? Oh, that's interesting. So it really depends. You know, this is where the UEDA comes in. So if we understand that, you know, they only operate, you know, a user usually operates in certain hours, certain days of the week, only accesses data at a certain rate, uh, that helps a lot. Now the, uh, as far as recognizing it, that, that can be very difficult. If it's just one thing at a time here and there, it's going to be very difficult. Um, but typically, a bad actor is going to try to grab as much as they can before they get shut down. Uh, if they haven't just been sitting there forever, you know, and uh, you know, you'll, you'll see that. Um, there, there are ways to mitigate against that, that kind of a threat, though. You know, there's just-in-time access and authorizations that can be used. Uh, so let's say you're using, you know, some type of CRM where, you know, you're required to va validate information before you can even see the records, you know, that, so that's one way to mitigate against that because you, you won't even have access to it yourself until you validate that. So you can't just go look at patient records, you know, that could help in that case that you're talking about with this celebrity. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's probably the thing is that if it's just one thing at a time, there, there's not much you can really do, but, uh, unless there's a time frame. 
Yeah, I worked for a financial services company. I can't won't mention their name in the past. Anyhow, they had issues with salespeople stealing the leads. They would decide to resign. And when they decided to resign, they would dump all their dump all their contacts and take them with them or to dump all their leads and take them with them or send them over to the new company first and then resign. So I, I think I'm not sure where this question came from, but I'm assuming that may be along the lines they're asking because it was using legitimate credentials. Uh, and they were just asking, how do we detect it? So, yeah, uh, so that, that would just be a norm, that would just be a behavior, you know. So obviously, mm-hmm. if you didn't want somebody to dump credentials out, you can watch for that specifically. Like, oh, you know, they they don't they exported their you know email contacts, so they exported from here. You know, that that would be just a behavior to watch. So that that should be caught in like a UEBA uh, type of situ- situation, uh, as long as you're feeding those logs in. So you know, there's. Obviously, can't watch everyone with traditional UEBA, but you know newer stuff based on machine learning actually can take a lot more of that in. You can build models around that. Uh, you know, machine learning can be used to amplify you know your force, but a lot of people just set it up and think they're all set forever. But that's not true. You need threat. Uh, that that's where you get your threat hunters in there, watching yep. for these patterns and, and parsing through the data to see. If there's any new potential threats, you know, and modeling those threats, having those tabletops, you know, having these lot larger discussions of what should be happening, talking with departments, saying, hey, is this a normal behavior or what should happen in your process? So you go through all their processes. You know, that's where you're going to find that stuff. So with processes, would you would you recommend, Jeff, processes such as DL, DLP, data loss prevention? Um, would that would that help in this Particular question. This uh, person's at question. I mean, so like I said, they're asking, "How do we? How can we find insider threats if genuine credentials are used for malicious intentions by attackers?" So, would DLP play a role in something yeah. along those lines or those types it, of technologies? As an alert, absolutely. Okay, uh, but I think I think because obviously you know exfiling data, large amounts of data, you want to be able to have controlled, and DLP can help manage and monitor that kind of thing. But I think it's a it's a the question to me the the answer to that question really relies on I think what Joe just said behavior I think you were said that too right you've got to wait for the behavior of somebody before you can identify it based on the the example that that the question is based in but I think there's a and this is where it gets a little tricky so I'm going to give an example um, when an organization is going through a layoff or a merge or a, unfortunately and this is the hard conversation because then it gets into user privacy issues. Are there people who, you know, you're going to move out of the organization? Well, then are, are they a higher threat to your organization? So how do you as the CEO, as the CIO, as the CISO, monitor that those particular people? Can't tell you how many times I've seen that happen. Yeah. Um, an example is if years ago, the OPM breach comes to mind, right? So the <laughs> OPM breach, it happened because there was a contractor. We sold it to a contractor, a contractor in the U.S., leveraged a contractor in Brazil. Wow. On on call, phone support, totally unsecured network. That was swiped by some folks in China. Yeah. Right. But the whole process there of of how that contractor said, oh well, we're we're gonna we're the government's not gonna pay us enough money to do this ourselves, so we're gonna have to outsource it at a really cheap rate. And the government didn't have a clue. So that kind of that kind of process, you've got to think about who am I putting in the driver's seat? How what business decisions am I making that are gonna impact the people who are accessing the data? We're not going to be accessing the data anymore. And what's that risk look like? So that threat profile I mentioned earlier, it's very key uh, to be able to look at it that way and understand how that works. Because you could be, everything is great, everything is wonderful, and you know, drive yourself off a cliff and not even know it. 
So challenging. It is. It is absolutely. So in my experience, zero trust, true zero trust, not just saying with zero trust, but actual zero trust does help in this scenario because you're micro-segmenting, you're, you're just in time permissions, just enough permissions, et cetera. Joe, have you seen the same thing? I mean, where zero trust has hindered the ability for someone to be an insider threat. Have you seen uh, that? that? Absolutely. Um, you know, just-in-time access is a really good example. You know, so if I need to get an approval to put on a role that would allow me to make a change or to export data, uh, you know, and if you have the proper role set up, so I might have, you know, a, a, an overall global admin and I'll have a security admin level, I'll have a security viewer level, you know, day to day, I probably need to view and I might need to admin, uh, but anything higher than that, if we have authorizations from other people to, to be able to export that stuff, that, that makes a huge uh, dent into that. Um, and of course, there's a lot more to zero trust, you know, securing all the, the communications and how you get the authorizations. But uh, as far as it goes for just-in-time permissions, that's been a huge asset. Uh, sometimes it slows you down in your changes a little bit, but I find that that's acceptable. I mean, you well, know, cause if I, <laughs> yeah, because it, it, it uh, you know, because most most organizations don't start with it, so they they move into a model with authorizations. You know, so they start off, they don't have a change board, they don't have anything, they have a change board, and they still have their full, you know, fat admin. And they, they go through and they they just do whatever they need to do when they say they're going to do it. Or they might do it ahead of time, pre-stage, you know, but they didn't put that in their plan. So if you go back and actually audit that plan, you, you know, things were done in the wrong times. And, and that can be a threat on its own. Uh, yeah, because maybe maybe they'll access stuff they shouldn't or maybe they'll get hit with, a, you know, a, you know, ransomware attack while they're doing that. Or they'll download a tool that they shouldn't. It's not a process. But if they didn't have these rights in the first place, you know, with the zero trust model, they wouldn't be able to install that app. They wouldn't be able to go outside of the normal, you know, patterns and behaviors that you set up. So you, you can kind of enforce behaviors and that gets back into the behavioral analytics. It's a lot easier to control or find bad behaviors if you control the behaviors in the first place. So Jeff, we've got a question for you. I'm going to throw it, Jeff. So can we automate processes to find insider threats through playbooks or any other methods? Yeah, absolutely. Right. So. Uh, the advantage of doing that is that there's a lot of playbooks, typical cyber operations playbooks that organizations already have that you can leverage. So you don't have to start from scratch. But you have an incident response plan. <clears throat> What's it based on? A threat? Well, what kind of threat? How do you profile that threat? Right? So it's the same idea. You have the same templates, the same process, maybe the same playbooks, but you tune them a bit more to uh, what your inside risk could be. I think that, that's certainly more controllable when you do it the way we just described it. In the when looking in the wild and you're looking at as a CISO, you're looking out across the world, there's a whole lot more unknowns and uncontrollable things that you got to manage. Inside your organization, it's a lot easier because you've got support, you've got access to your networks, you can do, you know, do what you need to do. Using that as a good template to be able to say, okay, from a threat perspective, a threat modeling perspective, or a threat actor perspective. What would they go after? Where are playbooks aligned with that? What technologies would we would somebody leverage to be able to access data, exfil data? What's that? What does that process look like? I mean, it, it, a long time ago, Lockheed Martin came up with the uh, the kill chain. Uh, yep. DNI came up with one that I thought was that combined like four different kill chains that have come out over the years. I think it was in 2016. DNI came out with their own that kind of mapped to everybody's, which is really good. Using that kill chain model 
uh, for insider threat is actually not a bad place to start because it looks at where your risks are. It helps you focus down on what's most critical in your organization and what to do about it. So, yeah, I did what I did. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it works really well. So that would be something you could build and then automate into your current processes. Like I said, tuned a little bit differently instead of over here for security, over here to insider threat a little bit. So, yeah. Okay. So would you guys recommend using any antivirus, any malware solutions, patch management systems to kind of help reduce the insider threat potential? Yeah. Go ahead, Joe. Go ahead, Joe. Oh yeah, there's there's definitely a few things you could do with that. Uh, so there's there's lots of advanced threat platforms built into modern antivirus. You know that basically acts as a you know an EDR or or you can add some automation that you know get more like an XDR setup. Um, and yeah, you, know, you can watch for how and again it gets into behaviors. You know how how are these processes behaving? What are they accessing? You know are we doing a memory scrape inside of a Word document? Uh, you know, stuff like that, you know, trying to pull password hashes out, you know, the, some of this isn't as, you know, crucial on, on more modern operating systems because, you know, they hide the, uh, the user stuff in a virtualized container, in a encrypted container, but, you know, the, uh, you, you go back in older operating systems, that, that could be a major issue. You could just do pass the hash or whatever else. Um, but yeah, watching for those behaviors, you know, and how they might spread across from, you know, machine to machine, being able to trace that across. There's lots of different technologies that are very similar out there. I've seen from different vendors, you know, uh, whether it be Microsoft, Checkpoint, you know, whatever. There's, there's going to be a million of them. I, I could name them all day. But, um, yeah, that, that, that makes a huge difference. And, and knowing what, what vendors to kind of trust, which ones not to, having version controls, uh, you know, application whitelists, uh, all that stuff built into there is uh is, is huge and then um the other thing that they're starting to do in some of these platforms is also watch for privilege escalation or even handle the privilege that's escalation. probably going to go next oh. yep. good yeah and, and that's that's a major thing so if uh you, know, you have a developer everybody's uh, every developer i've ever met's like i need admin on my machine it's like well you don't you need your compiler needs admin while you're compiling Yes, and then you need to run it as a user because you know you're wondering why your code doesn't work when it goes to a user's <laughs> machine because you ran it in an administrative context, and, and that's just not going to be accurate. You know, you're going to have bad testing from it. So, not it's not even just insider threat, but also yeah, yeah, yeah. development practices. Yeah, yeah. So, what do you guys think to of uh, what's more important when inside a threat program? Is it methodology or is it technology? What makes a bigger difference? I tend to like methodology because you're actually looking at what are you supposed to be doing? Who's doing what? What's moved? What kind of data is moving across? What kind of network specifically? So I prefer the methodology and the anomaly detection versus anything else, honestly, because now you're really under, because that what that does is that describes to yourself and proves your, to yourself, your own company, that you know what type of data is moving based on what processes, on what networks. And what other processes, you know, what's so it goes in a process, comes out of a process, right? So if you don't know what's going to happen, you don't know what's happening at GIGO, right? Garbage in, garbage out. And you have no idea what's really moving around. But if you know what that looks like, the methodology helps me understand much better personally. I just, oh, this is my, my thoughts. I, I totally agree. Without methodology, the technology doesn't matter. Because um, if you don't have to, if you don't have a methodology to, you know, basically to, to, augment whatever tools you have and to look for new behaviors or do, you 
know, threat hunting, there's no tool that's a threat hunting tool per se. Like, yeah, okay, you can <laughs> yeah. do packet capture or whatever, look at logs. But that's not threat hunting. That That's just looking at logs. You know, so you might use a technology to figure out a behavior or to help you figure out a behavior, but you need the process to implement that in and to then move it forward. I mean, the technology itself doesn't necessarily matter. What's the rest of the question back at Jeff? Yeah, I agree. I think in all, all years I've done this, you know, technology comes and goes. <clears throat> There's newer technology every five minutes, especially in cybersecurity. Yep. Um, but as a CISO, I don't have time to go through every piece of technology and figure no, out what's going to work. As a CISO, my job is not to be a world yeah. engineer. Not at all. Yeah. That is not yeah. my job. I That's am my not, job. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I'm not all, <laughs> but it, it's that methodology. Yeah. It's I that methodology. Right? What, that involves engineering or involve security but that that's where it's just so i right i'm not i'm not the engineer anymore joke and run smoke circles around me all day long <laughs> engineering wise you know because I, I don't do that anymore I, ma- I manage business decisions so jeff let me ask you a question we got another question from the audience here i'm going to get take probably two or three more questions from the audience here as they come up and then we'll go ahead and start wrapping this up a little bit i mean we're not wrapping right now but in about 15 minutes i'm gonna start wrapping this up but so the question to you jeff is what do you find the most common thing in quotes that security tends security teams tend to overlook and not keep in mind when developing out their strategies in relation to insider threats threat modeling threat model and, and, that, and that goes both I mean, when you're looking at threat, doing a threat model for your inside for your organization it's about data but then what data is most important who has access right it's, it's very similar to outside threat modeling but my experience that people haven't slowed down enough to look at that they were rushed to put a program together, buy a couple of tools to monitor data data usage, user awareness, user access. But then they get caught up in those cycles that Joe just talked about. All this data, all this stuff I got to figure out. It just, and they think that's an inside threat program. It goes back to the methodology for me. It goes back to the methodology for you. So what social engineering awareness training do you recommend? Or do you even recommend social awareness and training anymore because of technologies that we use? Like a, IDS, IDPS, IPS individually. Do you still recommend we do social en- social engineering? Awareness Absolutely. Training? Absolutely. That, that, that helps all the way around. Right. You as an employee, but you and your house. <laughs> yep. Managing your kids and your family, right? Um, it is not going to go away. Uh, so many more organizations or uh, the, the bad guys are getting, are exercising more techniques and procedures that revolve themselves around espionage. And espionage, is much more quiet. So it will involve social engineering. It will involve social media exploits. It will involve things that you don't think about. And, and you know, the bad guys have an opportunity to sit around all day and dream up these ideas, right? And, and they can get it right. So, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a common issue. Um, yeah, there's, there's, a, there's eight or nine different biogenetics companies in and around Boston right now that I'm aware of, that I know about. And they all have pretty significant IP doing their genetic work. I mean, this is amazing stuff these companies are doing. And one of one of the nine has a CISO. The others have IT directors and no one, a couple people have no one dedicated to security. The, I, the, the IP oh. that's being developed, the targeting that they, I mean, and, and the social engineering around that is, is phenomenal, right? We sat back and watched that over the summer, how that was just evolving over to two of these nine companies I talked about. Uh, it, it's amazing to see happen. So the bad guys are going to get smarter. They're going to use more creepy tactics, if you will, uh, of social engineering uh, to be able to get access to your personal information or your company's information through your own network. So 
is not going away. So having that training absolutely every day, all the time, <laughs> once a month, once a week, I mean, might be a pain in the butt, but it's going to help everybody. Yeah, I see companies looking for the next tool rather than dealing <laughs> with their users and dealing with training. Yeah. The reality is technology is awesome. It does exactly what we tell it to do. <laughs> but I don't know about you, Jeff, I mean, or Joe, I, as a CISO, have to be right 100% of the time to keep the bad guys out, right? They just got to get lucky once, right? So I can't always look for the next tool. I actually got to train people. That's just my nickel. People have to be aware of it. You know, the social engineering, the, you know, the phishing, the smishing, et cetera. My opinion, we just need to train our users. So when they see something, say something, I would drop anything to stop a breach because somebody said, hey, should I open this in email? This doesn't look funny. You know, if somebody stopped and asked me, I will drop anything, run right to your desk. If I have to physically get up, go to your desk, I'll do that to help to stop a breach. That's just my nickel. Um, I do have a question from the audience here real quick. Joe, maybe you could speak on this and then Jeff, maybe you can as well. Um, could you speak on the IPS and firewalls? Basically, how network security plays a role in detecting and mitigating insider threats? Oh, wow. That's an interesting one. I mean, as far as it goes, I mean, IDS, I mean, that's more intrusion, you know, stuff coming in. But um, yeah, I, I mean, that, that, that's going to play into behaviors as well, because you're going to have these access logs, you're going to have everything else. And, and that builds your picture of what the user is doing. And that picture, that story, I mean, that, that's how you can figure out what process they're trying to do or what behavior that they're exhibiting. You know, so the, the intrusion might not be, you know, somebody that's, a, you know, might not be a bad actor. They might have taken a credential or might be a bad actor who stole a credential bad MFA, you know, like you're using SMS still or something along those lines, or, you know, they left a copy of their, their QR code on the screen and somebody you know, duplicated their, their token, you know, something like that could have happened. Or when they were re-enrolling, somebody captured your token, you know, that that's why having, you know, better MFA practices and having apps that, you know, require you to put in the, the number that's on your screen and, and tying it to a specific device is important. Uh, but uh, yeah, the IDS helps build out your picture and allows you to do those behavioral analytics to say, okay, they access from here, but they were they're supposed to be in New York, but they're accessing from Russia or they're accessing from Ohio. Like let's not even go out of country. Uh, that's impossible, you know, unless they're using things that you don't want. So if they if they're using a VPN, sure, you might see that, but why are you allowing users on public VPNs to connect to your network? So that okay. that would be you know, potential breach or a way to detect it as well, or, you know, to utilize that inside of your insider threat. Awesome. Yeah. I, I agree with Joe. I agree with Joe. I think good points. I think that the challenge with that is you can't do that for everything you see clearly, because then you have to hire 50 more people to monitor all the logs <laughs> and get and you know, 50 people to watch those 50 people. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And it becomes, <laughs> it becomes very onerous and it's not, it's not a long-term solution. So being able to take a step back, and you guys have said this already, right? The threat modeling piece. What's your most important data? Who's most likely to access that data? Don't look at the person. Look at their credentialed access, right? Because, as again, as we said at the beginning of this, bad guys come in, look at your network, and they want to up, upskill their credentials. They want to look like an administrator so that so no one can see them. So you watch those administrator accounts. You, you do a threat modeling around those administrator accounts. You do threat modeling around accounts that, you wouldn't think our administrator accounts, right? The, 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 this, the assistant who works with the CFO, they are a target in the organization as from a bad guy's perspective. So if I want to look like an insider, 
if I'm a bad guy and I want to look like an insider threat, I want to go look like the assistant to the CFO. So then the admins can't find me. And I can go in there and suck up all the data. And when I'm ready to leave, it's too late for everybody, right? So again, it's that threat modeling piece, I think in the middle layer. Uh, and then what Joe said, all the, all how do you use the ideas and what capacity and what, what processes you use? Because if you don't approach it from that way, then you're trying to do that with everybody. That's just not attainable. There's just too much work otherwise. So Joe, what's your take on network segmentation and firewalling between the segments? Oh, geez. Well, if a server doesn't need to talk to a server, they don't allow it. So, you know, in more modern things, you might have, you know, network security groups and, you know, I can apply that to a machine or a network and you, you layer these things. So, you know, this app can't talk to that app. And, you know, why does an end user have to talk to a database? We have application servers that talk to caching servers that talk to databases. So, like, the, even the application doesn't need to talk to the database. And it only needs to talk through a certain port with a certain user with a certain level of access. and that's you know that that's a major thing with segmentation like segment not just the computers from each other but the ports and the protocols uh from each other you know there's no reason that the web server needs to connect on you know the rdp port to the <laughs> database server or ssh you know from one thing to another you know it needs to go to the redis uh, and then go to the you know the applicate the actual data on the back end um so, I mean, that, that's a major part. Uh, not allowing users to access the network directly is another thing. You know, so there's products, uh, for example, like Zscaler, where you can basically have a per-application VPNN based on a user's profile access. And, you know, you can use that to control the access to the applications, and the applications can't get out to each other. So even if somebody breaches that user against the application, they can't log into that server because all they have access to is port 443, you know, they can't get a reverse shell out because that server's not allowed to connect to the internet. And, you know, they can't, you know, it's just, you can't traverse the network as easily or at all in a lot of these cases. You know, so what does it need? Well, it needs inbound access from the update server. It needs to be able to get scanned or it needs the agents to be able to report out and then have stuff pushed to it. But it doesn't need to access the internet per se. So, I mean, that's just the, I could keep going for years on this. That's the basics. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I can. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, so let me ask you this, Jeff. At the end of today, we have about 10 minutes left, and I'm, I'm happy to use the full 10 minutes. What would you say is your favorite or what is your recommended user or risk management framework? So let's talk about risk managers for a second. So do you have a risk framework that you would prefer to use? And if you do have a risk management framework, why, do you, why, why is your preference? Sure. Um, I use two, actually, in conjunction. Um, <clears throat> the NIST CSF, um, it's designed for not, it's not technical. A lot of people think it's technical. The CSF is not technical. It's designed to manage business risk. It's the bridge, if you will, between technical and the business folks. That's how it was originally designed. Um, I think that's key because that helps people translate what's going on in, in, into terms that are bite-sizable and actionable. Um, for the board, for senior non-technical executives. So that's key. But I also use that in conjunction with the CIS 18. Um, that's been around for a long time. It used to be the CIS 20 uh, or the oh. SANS 20 or CAG, right? I think we talked about that before, Rick. Um, right, so it, it's, it's been around for a long time. The difference is between the two, the CSF is, again, it's a strategic business view of how to run and manage cybersecurity risk. The CIS 18 is how to operationalize security in your organization. 
very tactical, very practical, right? There's 40 some different frameworks in the world today, 40, I think 47 or 48 at this, at this point. We're talking everything from Saudi Arabia having their own to Singapore having their own to Hong Kong now developing, having their own um, to the standard ones we know about, HIPAA, PCI, et cetera. Uh, the CSF is broad enough to cover business, which is important. There's a few others to do that, but I have yet to find any other framework like CIS 18 that's practical and tangible that applies to all of security for your organization. PCI is just servers. HIPAA is just healthcare information. It's, it's a P, PCI is just financial data on servers. HIPAA is just healthcare information. So that it's very scoped. CIS 18 is broad and it focuses on cyber operations. Combining those two is a win. Um, I've, I've, I've had the opportunity to implement um, the CIS 20 uh, over 50 times since 2010. Uh, and then oh. this CSF 19 times. Yeah, I'm, I've done it so many times. I'm an advisor to CIS. So I'm kind of, I'm very familiar with it because I've, I've helped revise it and edit it and audit it for so many years because I just, it's, I needed a framework when I first found out about it in 2007. Um, I first found out about it then and I, it just really worked for me as a CISO and I've just watched it progress and develop. Uh, and again, it's just a great operational framework um, that I've used consistently to build socks and to run uh, cyber operations. But again, to your point, to your question, the business side is so critically important. I've, I've learned to make those two together um, so I can have those conversations. I talk to a CISO and a CIO about cyber operations, what they need to do. Talk to a board of directors on or a CEO about, hey, here's how your top risks are for your enterprise program. Here's how they map to what the, the technical team is doing. And here's what you got to invest in, right? So that's those are my two. I don't know. What, what do you guys think? What have you guys heard? What do you like? Joe, what about you? What, what what risk framework do you prefer to use, if any? Uh, well, a lot of times we've been just running inside a NIST. It, it depends on the client. You know, so the thing is, sometimes, like most of the time, I go in and they have a framework they want to follow. Everyone says, oh, I want to follow you know, you know, some NIST standard. And you're like, okay. And then you start mapping your tool, you do your gap analysis. You know, it's like, okay, th- this will fit. But the the I think the thing that we usually miss is the um, how do you communicate that to the board to get priority on the technical yeah. aspect mm-hmm. instead of just checking boxes. Because a lot of times what happens is your security and compliance officer together, you know, it's one person or two people. And they're just like, okay, well, we need to have this technology. You know, oh, we need to have DLP. And they, they think that tagging is DLP. You know, uh, <laughs> just stuff like that. But that that's what... That's the control that they understood when they read it. And they're like, oh, we solved it in 10 minutes. And well, no, <laughs> no, you, you didn't. Oh, you didn't. didn't. Why? But yeah, <laughs> I, I think I got to take away from Jeff on that is, is using that other framework to uh, uh, help communicate with with the uh, C level, the C suite. Yep. And there's a couple yeah. different NIST, right? I mean, people think. Oh, oh absolutely. It depends on the industry you're in and what which one yeah. will yeah. apply. But. Like no, 853, yes. 853 yeah. is probably used, right. which is yeah. years, and I can't take 53 pass every time. And it's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. It's too big, right? Um, yeah. Oh, it's way too big. Yeah, I've seen a few others that uh, were. Well, the, the, again, it, it comes down to none of them. None of them that I had seen before. I'll have to take a look at the the, the ones that you're talking about that that, that can actually talk to the C suite because yeah, that, that's yeah, I think that's a big. Big things. You take somebody that's like myself, you know, engineer and architect, you know, been doing this for forever. Um, being able to translate that to exec speak isn't always the easiest thing. Yep. You know, so that, that's that's definitely a challenge. Yep. So identify, protect, detect, respond, recover, and now govern. Now yeah. govern. 
my favorite. Yeah. Stick, right? so, in there. But when you ask those questions to the business, is identify, identify what, what's your most important information? What's your most important business data? What's your most important plans, right? And that's not, that's not technical at all. Nope. And the CEOs are like, oh, okay, then this kind of makes sense. Exactly. And now here's how we've identified the technical needs, both IT and cyber, to support what you just said is important, right? right? And then, then lights go on, right? I love those conversations because they're like, oh, okay, this is starting to make sense. There's a you know, roadmap here, exact. Um, yeah, and, and I've tried to aid that roadmap too. So uh, most recently in DLP, you know, I started um, you know doing stuff with data stewards, and basically we have our building blocks of what can happen in DLP, the technologies, and we gave it, we gave them common words, and then we add that we tell them to build stories around their data using those words, and they can tell us how to how to work. So they that they're generating the requirements by building the, the user story. Yep, and then re-engineer that and architect that, and figure out how the rules work so we can have that result. And then we also, of course, do a full regression, make sure that all the other rules still apply. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that, that's, uh, that's been a huge help as well, communication. Yep. I have one more question for you, Jeff. I, I, go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Go ahead, Jeff. No, I didn't have anything to say. Go ahead. Uh, so I got one more, one more uh, viewer question. How do you tackle international organizations that's subject to multiple frameworks? So if you have GDPR, for example, and CCPA and NYDFS, I mean, oh, yeah. you can go alphabet soup here all day long with a different, <laughs> different frameworks or different regulatory agencies. I mean, I fell into ERCOT for a while. Mm. Oh, my God, I hate ERCOT. <laughs> That's just my opinion. Um, but how do, you, how, do you, how do you tackle that? How do you deal with that with, inter- with organizations with multiple oh, frameworks yeah. across organizations? How do you deal yeah, with that? I'm, I'm laughing. I've, I've had that, too. I've had, yeah. uh, I've had fed-ups with that. Uh, one of them was GDPR, uh, Bermuda, you know, NYDFS, you know, and initially it was Bermuda first and then NYDFS and GDPR uh, that fell in there. And of course, that just kept on turning the screws tighter. And, you know, you, sometimes you make yourself compliant with one, you fall out with the other. Yep. Uh, so that gets into a, a large architectural nightmare where, you know, you need to segment off your users and your data into different areas, build up information barriers and everything else. It's really an architecture issue and an access control issue. Where's the data stored? Who's accessing it? Where? Because I'm accessing NYDFS data in Europe. It's NYDFS and GDPR, and it might not be you know, congruent. Uh, so that that's, that's usually a major issue. So you have to move the data and eliminate access and you know, ensure that people are only accessing things through where they should. So you think so? Okay. So you absolutely think believe that the frameworks should be remain segregated, Joe? Or no, they, they should. That we need to come up with a global framework. I'm sure, uh, the, but there really isn't one. Like, there's nothing you can do to be in, inside of all of them. It's just not possible right now. You know, you, you'll fall in in compliance with one and out of compliance with you know <laughs> what is it, 47 others? Yeah, uh, right. Exactly. And, you know, then that, and that's just how that that's going to work. I mean, you can follow a lot of zero trust stuff; they'll cover you on most of it. But you're going to be eighty or ninety percent compliant across the board. Uh, you know, you'll never be hundred percent. And no. of course, compliance is just that. I mean, some of it's even just planning. You'll say, "Oh, how are you going to solve this?" You'll say, "Okay, we're going to discover that over the next year." And then you get to the next year, and you're like, "Okay, we've discovered these things. Now we're going to try to move towards this." So, you know, you don't necessarily have to ever be hundred percent compliant. In any of them, but yeah, always have to have plans on how to move yourself closer. Yeah, yep, I, I wouldn't agree. say you don't have to be 100 percent compliant. Well, I, you should be. You try. You're not. Yeah. <laughs> we all know the truth. So, we all try. 
about seven years ago, uh, this, that same question came up <clears throat> with a group at CIS that I was working with at the time. And uh, it's a really community, a community defense model is really what the CIS 18 is about, right? We take feedback from community every year, collate that information, then reproduce something or update or edit, really. So a couple of really smart people who had some extra time on their hands uh, and, and then leveraged a bunch of us to help feed this document. We developed crosswalks. Now, they're not for all 47, but it's got CSF and then what compliance frameworks map each area of the CSF. CIS 18, what compliance frameworks map for the CIS 18. So you can pull up an Excel doc, the you know, Excel doc that we've got, and you should be able to get, yeah, to go to CIS.org. It's up, you know, they have the mappings for maybe 18 yeah. uh, of different, different uh, standards in the world and see how the CIS applies to those 18. So GDPR, EMEA, GDPR UK, different, uh, but the same, they're but different. They right? say so, the same, but they're not. Yeah. No, they're not. So, but if you go to CIS.org, you can, they've, it's already been mapped. So people That's can access that and say, if it's PCI, it hasn't mapped to CIS 18. Oh, it's this. So at least you've got a starting place to go from. Because I did a GDPR, it took me a year and a half to GDPR in, in place yeah. organization. And I did exactly that. I went, I went to CIS, downloaded the crosswalk, went along PCI, went along yep. the stuff where we had to be, and along GDPR. Where do we match? Okay, that's great. That's all wonderful. But what doesn't match or what's competing? Yep, exactly. And that's what you map. So, and, and, and people, when you, when you approach situations like that, especially when it's international, you say to your folks, hey, look, we're going to find more gaps and we might find alliance here, alignment here. But you got to understand, once we're done with this, you're going to have to make some executive decisions yep. on compliance. It's a business decision. Right? Do you want to go with this, this framework or that framework? And what's the legal ramifications, uh, especially for internationals? Yeah, I've seen them bugged. Okay, what's cheaper to pay? Yeah, literally, right, exactly. it's a business decision, right? Yep. You know, it's like you find fifty thousand dollars a day for throwing three hundred thousand dollars away. You keep getting paid, you know, for three. <laughs> you, instead of spending three hundred grand, you keep paying that fifty grand. It's cheaper than that three hundred grand all yep. day long. Yeah, yep. happens all the time. You don't spend a million to protect a thousand all the time. <laughs> yep. Awesome, awesome. So, Jeff, I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up, and I want to start with you, and then I'm going to go to Joe. Um, what at the end of today's discussion? This has been a great discussion, by the way, guys. I really appreciate you both being on the panelists today. I really do. Um, what would be the three or four things, Jeff, that you would want somebody to walk away from this conversation understanding? What What would you want them to learn out of today's conversation? Uh, inside of a threat, program development is not a tool. It's a methodology and a process. There's good methodologies, methodologies and processes that are out there. Go to, Card go to Cardin Gamelin. Go to, gosh, even DHS has got a good framework to leverage to start with, at least. Won't fit for everybody, but at least it gives you a direction to go in. Uh, and keep in mind, insider threats are business decisions. They're not technical. They're not cyber. They're business decisions. They're executed by cyber and IT. But you've got to get the business in, in invested in the concept uh, going yep. forward. Joe, what about you? What through what what are you hoping to that to impart upon our audience today before we leave? What did you want them to walk away from learning something new, or what you would stress? Um, I, yeah, I mean, I, I would stress the the whole thing of you know making sure that you're always going back over your configurations, making sure that you you're covering everything off. You know, try to get some behavioral analytics in there that's beyond just you know traditional sim or you know, traditional IDS, try to tie all that stuff together. And user training, you know, user training is is worth more than anything. That's probably 90% of your issues are going to come from user training, um, you know, and 
that's assuming that you've uh, you know, secured your identities correctly and mitigated your East West. <laughs> that was one of mine is user, user access reviews. Do them regularly. Do them all the time. Not just for your end users, but also for your admins and your processes, because that's the one thing I see a lot. External of users too. You can invite <laughs> users if your tenant from outside. Make sure yep. you watch them. Third party. Yep. Okay. Awesome. Exactly. Okay, guys. Uh, I appreciate everything today. I appreciate your time, Jeff. I hope you'll come back to us, Joe. I hope you'll come back and be yeah, both. Cool. Yep. I really want to say you guys had some great knowledge, and we really appreciate your time. And everyone Thanks, in our audience, we hope you've gotten something from this, and we wish you a good week. And see you next week.